looks a little more beautiful. Um, this morning we're going to dig into, I'm going to kind of recap a little bit of chapter one at the end and then kind of dive us into chapter two. Um, for me, I've been, I look forward to this time with you. I thank you for investing in it. I think that, you know, as you go back and look at history, so many theologians that have come uh, before us have said, look, here's a book that really fundamentally causes you to think about what does it mean to, uh, to be a Christian. And there's going to be components of this book that really challenge us, I think. Uh, but that also elements that let us take a look into uh, kind of behind the curtains. What is God doing? Why, why does God do what he does uh, the way that he does it? Whether I like it or not, uh, God is God. And here's how he's acting in human history, not just when this book is written, but up to this point in time today. Let's pray and we're going to dig in. Lord, as we uh, come together, we're just going to ask your, your presence. Um, Lord, it's, it's, um, it's good to come together and to have your word penetrate our lives. I'm just going to ask that you allow us to, to listen today and to hear and to see uh, what does it mean for us to, to be your church today. Lord, as we, um, as we dig in, be with us, we pray. In Jesus' name, let's say it together, amen. Kind of do a little bit of a recap. Uh, one of the things that we, I wanted to note early on uh, in, in our study of Romans is when you think of this book, a lot of people know Romans for its theology. And there's different books of the Bible that I call coffee mug books where we've reached into the book and we've taken, you know, a verse here and a verse here and a verse here and we put the verse on coffee mugs and we carry it around and go, oh yeah, I know, I know that verse. Um, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's sure helpful to, to put the coffee mug down and the verse down and to actually step back and say, let's take the whole of the book. Here's why that's important with Romans. When I listen to people talk about Romans, I'll hear folks say, well, this is, this is just like a, uh, this is like a theological treating, as though Paul's getting up in front of a group of people just teaching theology. But it's, it's not that. Uh, what I'm hoping you're going to see is the book of Romans is a highly missional book. In other words, it kind of takes us into the heart of a missionary, Paul, who is trying to equip a group of people to go out into a world that's much like ours today. And to bring into that world the only thing that has the power to change it. And that's the gospel. And um, uh, so what Paul is doing is he's speaking into the ears of these, these churches that have um, become a part of Rome. Most of these churches uh, began as, they were synagogues. Okay, so... Uh, what we know is if we, if, we could, if we could literally all go to Rome today and make our way through ancient Rome, we could identify, here's a, here's a synagogue, here was a synagogue, here was a synagogue, here was a synagogue. Multiple. Rome is big. Um, we think about half of those synagogues uh, actually converted over, became, became uh, Christian synagogues. Uh, so that these Jews were now living as what we would call Messianic Jews. Uh, they, they said, we're not dumping our Judaism, uh, but rather we see Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of what we grew up with in our lives. He, he is the Messiah who's completed uh, what we celebrate when we have Rosh Hashanah or when we, when we have the, the Pasach, the, the Passover meal. 
Uh, so Paul now is stepping into that context, and, and he's, he's really asking a question. So here you are gathered in your churches. This is really good because you need to do that to equip each other, to support each other, to encourage each other, to hold each other accountable. You need that. But what are you doing out here? Are you going out into the community where there are people who don't know the gospel? And what in, what in particularly are you doing with the, the Gentiles? It was easy for the church of his time, and I think it's easy for the church of our time, to look at the world and to say, that's bad, this is good. That thing out there we want no part of, this is good. And Paul is saying, no, God didn't call us to retreat into our, ourselves and to become exclusive clubs. He called us actually to disperse into our neighborhoods and into our communities and to actually bring a gospel that can bring about change. And so between chapter 1 and chapter 2, he's trying to set that stage. He's trying to say, I'm going to show you a picture of what's going on in, in the world around you and why the gospel is so needed. Um, there's a couple of verses that I'm going to kind of re-highlight because they, they stand out to me. Uh, and I think they have high-end relevance for our time today. Uh, verse, verse 21 is one of, one of those verses. As he's talking about the world and people in it, apart from faith, what he's saying is a couple of things. He's saying, listen, if I don't have faith, I should be able to look around me at the world and based upon what God has placed inside of me, my conscience, and what he's put around me, nature, I should be able to say to myself, huh, there, there's probably some kind of higher power that made all this. I should be able to say that. In other words, it should be evident to people that eyeballs don't just appear out of goo, right? That there's a complexity to the world and to the universe and its consistency that requires some kind of a maker, right? Um, so he's saying that that should be true about the, the world that we, we live in. Then he's saying the second thing that should be true is in recognizing that, pe- people ought to begin to ask questions about who I, who I am, but they're not. Why not? Okay. So he uses this term in, in verse 21. He says, the people did, did not doxa God. Now, in our English Bibles, the translations typically are not as strong as I would like them to be. So my ESV reads this way. It says, for although they knew God, okay, so I have a knowledge that there's some higher power, they did not, ESV says they did not honor him. Okay. Uh, some of your text might say they did not glorify him, right? The Greek word here, I think, has more depth to it. Is they did not doxa God. Doxa means they did not recognize God's presence within His own creation. Okay. So whenever you hear the word doxa, we typically translate it glory. It's like um, when I was in Lincoln, I had a really a, a good friend in ministry as a Pentecostal preacher. It was his favorite word. I mean, he would, he did. He did it better than any preacher I've ever seen before. He's always like, glory! I said, glory! You know, uh, so you get that in your head, like, what, what in the world are you saying? Well, I don't think he even knew what he was saying. Because doxa has this sense, and it's not just like, oh, shining lights and glory and woe. It literally means that the eternal... Um, 
God has has entered into and is present within his own creation. It points to the incarnation. And so what, what, he, what, he, what Paul is saying is, here's what's going on. As you go out in the world, people should know that there's a maker and that I'm, I'm present in my creation. But they don't recognize my presence in it. Not in its making or in its being. They don't recognize me at all. In fact, here's, here's the result of that if you drop down a little bit. What's going on instead is people have become, and the word here is empty, in their thinking, and the word for thinking here is dialogismos, and what it means is, I'm putting this in my own words, is people are actually creating their, their own meta-narratives or their own stories about how we have meaning in this world and this life. Use a couple of examples here that maybe are are helpful. Um, one from the Undertaker, the funeral people. Um, I always love to have conversations with people like Dan Naranjo because they're meeting people at a time when um, death is present and inescapable. It's it's the fact in the room, and so unable to go around death and pretend like we're going to live forever, people have to make sense of it. Why did this happen? Why did this person die? What's your story? Uh, and what, by the way, what happened to this person after they died? Did they just poof, disappear? Did they go into the ground? Do they become reincarnated? What do you think happens? Well, if you think about funerals here in America, most of them, from a liturgical standpoint or uh, from the standpoint of what we do at a funeral, tie back to Western Christian traditions. Most of them do. The further we've gotten away from Christianity as a culture, however, the further away we've gotten from the practice of those traditions. And so when I talk to a Dan, he will say to me, it's, it's amazing how many people are coming to the funeral home and they want me, Dan, to do the service for them. They, there is no church. There is no religious body. There is no person out there. You're here. You're doing this service. You do, you do it for us. Says, okay, I can do that. What would you like me to do? Well, this is where it gets crazy because as Christians, we're able to do what? We're able to say, well, here's this person. Here's how we can describe meaning. They had a life that had a purpose given to them by God. They've died. That's a part of life. This death is not their end. There's a transition from this world into eternity. They're before God. We trust that we'll see them and their body reconnected to their soul in eternity at the day of the resurrection. We have a celebration. Now divorce yourself from all of that. What are you going to do with the body? So you go back to, to this time in life. What did they do with the body? What did the Greeks and the Romans do? They would stick you in a, like on a plat platter. And they would... What it looks like. like they'd stick a couple of coins on your eyes. Right? And then, then, then they would have this story, narrative, that they made up. Here's how the story went. When you die, you go to the underworld. So they knew there's a God. Although they knew there's a God, they did not 
recognize his presence. They knew there was a God. Yeah, you go to this underworld, and there's, there's this big, like, river. It's fire. It's the river of sticks, right? So how are you going to get across that river? Well, there's a ferryman that will take you across that river into the, the nether world, which is a, a shadow world of this world that you exist in after you die. But you got to pay the ferryman, and so we put coins on the eyes so that you can pay your way across the river of sticks. If you're wealthy, you're going to make it. If you're not, you're going to burn, right? Always interesting to me how there's elements of, of Christianity within that, right? That there's, there's a fire, that there's a knowledge. They have knowledge that there's a God. In fact, even more so than that, here, here's a sense that there's, there's fire that burns you up. There's got to be a payment made. Isn't that interesting? That's why Paul said, it's not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ that you are redeemed. How will I get across the river of sticks? Not, not with some sacrifice that I make or, or, or coins, but with the blood of, of, of Jesus Christ. That was in his time. Today, what do people do? Well, talk to Dan. He'll tell you. He says, people don't know what to do. They're like, well, what happened to your, your loved one? They died. What would you like to do to, to celebrate their life? Well... Um, let's let's release butterflies in the air. They're they're like a butterfly. Okay, I guess we could do that. Let's. Um, they loved horses. Let's let's ride a horse into 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 the into the thing, and we'll be like, kai yai yippee yai. And then Dan, can you imagine being Dan? I'd be like, no, I don't think I'm going to ride a horse into your deal. Right? They don't know what to do. So people have to do what? Make up a story. This is life is really about this is how you find meaning in life. This is really what Paul is saying is start talking to people. Everybody has to have an answer to this question. What's your purpose? Everybody has to have an answer to this question. What happens to me after I die? And the only way you're going to come up with something is you got to kind of, your, your, mind, your mind has to do something. If you don't recognize the God of creation, the one who is present in his creation, you're left in a place where you start making that stuff up. And let me tell you that in our world today, there are many multiple competing meta-narratives that are going on uh, all of the time. One of the big ones we got to see displayed at the Super Bowl halftime. How many of you watched the Super Bowl? How many of you were really happy that the Chiefs won? Yeah. Poor San Francisco people. Um, I don't know if you watched the halftime, but I kind of thought, well, halftime is going to be one of those times where they got this gal and she's like a pole dancer kind of gal. And so I decided, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to walk the dog and get, get, get some things ready and then I'm going to watch the game. So I missed the Super Bowl. I missed the Super Bowl halftime. I asked, I asked Pastor Carl and Pastor Mike, how was the Super Bowl halftime? They said, they had unique camera angles. <laughs> Which is a really good, really good and nice pastoral way of saying, whoo, you should be glad you missed that baby. Okay. Now, my contention is, as, as in the aftermath and the multiple social media deals and commentaries, um, my, my, my thought is maybe what happened is 
um, people paid more attention to the angles of the camera than they did the meta-narrative or the story being told. Let me ask you this question. How many of you believe that that halftime show was crafted to tell a story? How many of you would agree with that? Did you notice the story that was being told? Maybe not. Most people don't. They're like this. Oh, did you see the dancers? Did you hear the songs? I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But guess what? There was a message being told, right? What was the meta-narrative? What was the, the story? Okay. Um, so we talked a little bit about this at our, our mentorship huddle, and, and Dr. Luby put this word in the air that I think is dead on right with this thing. Uh, he, he said, I, th I think what we got to see was an example, meta-narratively speaking, of what's called critical, think crit critical theory in America today. Now, critical theory is a theory that suggests, in a real simple way, two things. That when you look at life, all of life, there are two parties, right? Um, there are oppressors, and then there are those who are being oppressed. And so the goal in life is twofold, that namely the oppressors would lay down their oppressive spirits and would recognize their errors and their ways of oppression. And that the ones who are being oppressed would be lifted up or, or would at least take control back over uh, their, their own lives and assert themselves into this beautiful narrative in which everybody comes together and would get along as equals. Now think about the halftime show. Where were the children in that show? What were they in? Cages. What did those cages represent? By the way, this is a Latino subculture speaking this critical theory. What, what are the cages? You've seen them on the news many times. And you've heard people pounding pulpits, right? Saying, how could that president, how could this administration take Hispanic people, children, separate them from their parents, and put them in cages? Did you notice a flag? You did notice a flag. The flag was what kind of flag? Well, it was two different flags, wasn't it? It was the American flag over the top of the Puerto Rican flag. What's the story? America and its privileged have oppressed those who come from the Latino countries. That's the story. Okay? And if you really pay attention to the choreography and the movements of that entire dance, and you begin to recognize something that what's being pointed to throughout, whether it's the flag or the... I'm like, that sounded like a Lutheran choir right there. <laughs> you know, again, another part of this person's culture is I have an Islamic tie, right? And so America is oppressive to our cultures. 
And so really what's happening is just in a split, however many minutes the halftime show is, you're having displayed on television a story about life. And here's, here's where you find meaning. And you find meaning when finally people are able to put their differences aside and stop oppressing and, and, uh, and beating people up and, and the oppressors, uh, which I'm just scanning the room. A lot of you qualify as oppressors, all right? Um, the oppressors, you need to lay your power down and recognize your, your evil ways and the evil of this country that has oppressed so many for so long. And that's the message that's being played out. And everybody stands back and goes, what an awesome, what an awesome show that was. Well, I'm not here to judge the show you know, on, its, on its technical merits or, or the camera angles or any of that stuff. All I'm trying to do is make a point that in Paul's world, the same thing is happening. He's going out in the world, and so these churches would say, oh my gosh, look at that out there. That makes me angry. That's wrong. Uh, let's, let's withdraw from the world. And Paul is going, mm, time out here. I'm simply trying to say to you that there's such brokenness here that people have now bought into meta-narratives that lead to death. Not physical death, but spiritual death for eternity. And our role as the church is not, not simply to step back and critique But our role is to somehow recognize the only way you change those broken meta-narratives is with a narrative of life, i.e. the gospel. That's what I'm calling you to take out into the world. Now, what's God doing? Is he sitting back going, well, this is a fun show to watch? No. In fact, that's the second verse that really stands out to me is uh, verse 28 where God says, look, I'm, I'm active in front of you. I am active in front of you. In fact, here's what I'm doing. I am, I am bringing my wrath upon all of these broken meta-narratives that are, are allowing people to live apart from me. To the degree, we did this last week, remember this, that people are exchanging, sexually exchanging, uh, right relationships, for, for broken relationships and giving themselves over in lust uh, to a way of life that will completely destroy them. All right? So am I just sitting back watching that happen? No. I'm actually bringing my wrath upon that so that people who are practicing a lifestyle apart from me are receiving in themselves the due penalty of my orge or my wrath. Here's what God's saying is, I love people way too much to sit back and watch the halftime show. I've entered into the show. And what I'm bringing is something that seems pretty alien to God. In fact, it's something that doesn't make sense to people outside of the church. And it's something that doesn't make sense to people inside the church. I'm bringing my wrath. Hard stuff into people's lives. Why would God, you can't tell me God would cause that to happen. Yes, I can You can't tell me God would do that. Yes, I can. Why? Because he loves you too much. The purpose of wrath always is redemption, right? It's to call me back. It is to break me. It is to kill me. And if we're honest, as a church, what we would say to our community today is, 
Hey, welcome to Peace Lutheran. Uh, we're going to give you anything but. Anything but what? Peace. Do not say, I've come to bring, bring peace, Jesus said. I've come to wield a sword. What kind of a God wields a sword? A loving God. What kind of sword is it? It cuts. I don't think I like that. I'm going to find a different church. All right, you can. You can find plenty of churches. They got their sword put away. They'll tell you all kinds of really nice meta-narrative stories because they've joined the world. But guess what? In my church, there's a sword, and it cuts through bone on marrow to your soul. It convicts you. And guess what? Every single time we bring the law of God into our lives, guess what it does? It, it uncovers us. It cuts to the bone. It causes me to go, oh, Man, how did I get here? Its intention is what? Redemption. The same thing is true of hard things that God calls into our lives. I'm not, I'm, I'm not suggesting that every hard thing is, is moderated by a God who says, I'm going to zap you. No. Uh, there are times when, when God does what? He says, this is a hard thing that is going to result from the fallen condition of the world. I'm going to allow it to happen in my people's lives. But there are times when God says, I'm going to bring my wrath directly upon you. you think, Why would you do that, God? Redemption. I want you to die. I want you to, I want you to say, I am broken and I need help. And until you get there, you don't need me at all. And so God's saying, yeah, into this world where these people are making making up stories about meaning and purpose and death and life. I'm coming, and I'm coming in a way that seeks redemption. However, not all will be redeemed. Why? Because we have the capacity under the freedom of the will to push back against that which God is doing or speaking into our lives. That is the greatest power you hold in your life today, right? Someone says, man, that, that president, he's got immense power. He, he holds, he's got the suitcase. He's got the button in his hands. He's the guy who can push the button and, and cause a nuclear weapon to go off. There's no greater power than that. I'm like, yeah, there is. What is it? You have it. What is it? It's the power to reject the word of God. To reject the movements of God's spirit in your life. You have that power. He gave it to you purposely, with the intention of saying, if we're to have relationship, you have to have that ability, the power to push back against God. You have the power to say no to God. And guess what? We do it repeatedly. Repeatedly. All of us do it. Every one of us do it. We say no to God. Sometimes what? Sometimes actively by what I do. Sometimes passively by what I do not do. But always we have that capacity to push back against God. Here's what God's saying is, if I push back and I push back and I push back and I push back against God, my heart begins to harden against Him. I don't care about this God anymore. I don't care that you're the God of my life. I'm God. I want to be God in my life. And can I reach that place or that point where I have pushed back against God to that point that I am so hardened, I become unredeemable? And the answer is yes, I can. I can become unredeemable. <clears throat> For us as a, as a Christian church, my intention is always to say, 
please know that we, we do not have the ability to determine when a person reaches that place where they have rejected the Spirit of God and become unredeemable. That is not for us to know. God does. And so today, um, <clears throat> you know, as we're talking about these toxins that get into us spiritually, for me personally, I don't sit back and think, oh, this is, this is just going to be a nice sermon. I think, no, th this is a real thing that's going on in our lives. And the more I push back against God, I'm hardening my heart. And guess what? I, that there, is, there is a godly fear inside of me. I hope it's inside of you that says, I, I do not want to push back against God to the place that I become unredeemable. I do not, right? Uh, and so I invite the Spirit. Spirit, test me. Spirit, show me. Spirit, break me. To bring me to that place of what we call repentance, turning around, right? So... Um, Here's what, what Paul is doing. He's saying what's happened is we're, you're going to go into a culture that desperately needs the, the, the meta-narrative of life that you bring in the gospel. There are people who I'm already working in. I'm bringing my wrath upon them in order to break them. You're going to bring hope. Law precedes gospel. And uh, there will be some who will be redeemed who will hear this message and will receive it into their life, and I will, I will become Lord of their life. And guess what? There are others who are hardened, and they will walk away from you, and they will say, I curse you, church. I curse you, people. How dare you people tell me how to live? You don't, you don't have ownership over me? Yeah, because no one does, because you, you are your own God. You become your own God. You're living under your own meta-narrative. So... This is where Paul has taken us to this point where um, he wants us to hear what's going on in our world. I want you to see, if you'll, if you'll do this for me, the depth of what happens as people descend into hardness of heart. Okay? Um, this, is, this is a lengthy um, uh, sentence, uh, and, and Paul, Paul is the culprit who does this more than anyone else who writes in the Greek New Testament. He likes run-on sentences. So you almost have to do this. If you go to verse 29 and just do this with me, just kind of go like this, <gasps> because you're going to hear a lot of words come out at you, and I, but I want you to hear them and, and note how representative these words are of our culture in America today. Look at these words. They were filled up with all manners of unrightness, righteousness, dikaiosune. They're filled up with things that are not right with God. In fact, that will separate you from God. What are they? Here they are. The first word is in your New Testament English, what? Say it again. Evil or wickedness. Now I want you to hear the Greek word. Please listen carefully. Here's the Greek word. They were filled up with all manner of unrighteousness. The very first word, porneia. What does it sound like to you? Pornography. Um, it's not just evil. It's pornography by definition is what occurs when I cause someone to become a something, an object of my desire for my use. It's broader than sexual, but it's at its heart. 
sexual in nature, right? And so it's interesting to me that when I look at these words, are they consistent with what we see in our culture today? Oh my goodness, the very first word out. They're filled with all man- manners of unrightness, porneia, then covetousness, I want what doesn't belong to me, malice, ill intent towards someone. They're full of envy, murder, murder. Not necessarily I'm killing you, but I hate you. Hatred, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips. Does that sound like talk radio today? TV, whatever, slanderers. I'm going to say what I want to say about someone. It doesn't matter whether it's based in fact or not. Haters of God. Haters of God. I hate you, God. I I meet people all the time. They would say, oh, I don't hate God. Yes, you do. You you hate him in the sense that you you will not allow his word to have reign in your life. Some are insolent, haughty, boastful. This is an interesting one. Inventors of evil. Um, Interesting to me that we live in an age where um, we invent things and evil looks at it and says, oh, an internet, that sounds pretty good. What could we do with that? Oh, virtual reality. I wonder what we could do with that. And um, so you have people who, who, evil never changes, right? But we invent new ways to do it. Um, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless. And here's the word that I circle in my Bible because I think that it's very telling of our time today. Ruthless. Ruthless. I can't tell you how many times I find myself thinking human beings can become debased in mind to the degree that they become literally ruthless. They don't care at all what happens to you, provided I get what I want and what I believe that I deserve. Though they know God's decree, again, he comes back to this at the end of this chapter, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's the law that's within us, all right? That's the, that's the, the, the gnosis Greek word for knowing. I know this, but even deeper than that, there's a sense of consciousness that knows there's, this isn't right. Now, I won't acknowledge that. I won't say, oh, yeah, but there's something inside of me, that consciousness God put there, the law, saying this is wrong. Though they know that, people who practice these things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so it is that I'm going to close with two thoughts here. Thought number one. I want you to listen to me very carefully. So I was just to a big right to life gathering yesterday in our city. I want you to hear these words. Abortion is health care. I'm going to say it again. Abortion is health care. I'm quoting Bernie Sanders. Now for me to say that, I have to believe in the depth of my heart. I have to be have be convinced under a meta-narrative that says that a, a baby inside the womb is not really a baby, it's an embryo. It's an it. It's a thing. It's a conglomeration of cells. 
Now, um, to the point that in, in, in second and third trimesters, we can actually go in and chop that thing into that thing into pieces and suck it out of the mother. Thus, in March, we have a bill on our table here in Nebraska to say, mm-mm, we'll put you in jail if you're the doctor doing that, right? Um, wow. Um, I watched the Democratic debates to a T. Every single candidate was asked this question. If you are elected, will you make Roe v. Wade a litmus test for people who will serve as Supreme Court judges or who will serve in our federal courts? To a T, every candidate, yes, I will. Now, what I'm saying is, not Democratic or Republican, shove all that stuff to the side. What I'm saying is, now, biblical to you, and I'm telling you that we are living in a time where people not only do evil, but give approval to those who do evil. And we'll close with that thought and um, recognize the relevancy of Romans for our time today. Why does the church need to be the church? You cannot legislate change. You can only affect change at the heart level, and that occurs through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, as we close today, my, my hope is that you, your word would penetrate us in a way that allows us to recognize our role as church today, to know that the, the power that we hold uh, is greater than the power of, of the one who is, is evil. And it is the gospel. Lord, uh, we desire to be gospel lights in this community, uh, in our own homes and families, uh, in the schools that we teach in, and, and Lord, the businesses that we work in. Help us lift up your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. God's blessings on the week.